standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in Daniel chapter 2. And the first thing you may notice is that's not the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We haven't finished with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Elliot was reminding me this week that we started the Gospel of Mark about a year ago, and now we're in the middle of chapter 8, so we're halfway through. Uh, It's my desire to return to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It's been so rewarding and rich, and I hope that you have been uh, blessed by it as I have. But uh, due to uh, schedule and time constraints uh, this week, uh, and maybe in the next couple of weeks, we will not return to Mark uh, for a little bit. We're taking a break. Um, but this morning we turn to the, go- uh, to the Gospel of Daniel. <laughs> we turn to the Gospel of Daniel this morning <laughs> in uh, chapter 2. Uh, I would ask that you uh, look at the scriptures. We begin reading in verse 19 down through verse 23. Let us hear and attend to the word of God. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. The light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The prophecies of the book of Daniel are provocative uh, to the extent and so specific that some have tried to discredit them and say that Scripture could not even be that specific in reference to world events and, and history. But that's the unbelievers. So, yes, even for us as believers, the book of Daniel is provocative, provocative of our faith, because they are pointed and direct about God's sovereign direction of creation and human history. From cover to cover, this is what the Bible reveals to us, that God is sovereign. He directs the affairs of men. He keeps the creation, and He is involved in human history for the good pleasure of His will and ultimately for the salvation of the world. Now, through Daniel's prophecies, God also interprets his progressive revealing of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. That's a very important uh, thought that we've got to really hold on to. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. There are many earthly kingdoms which come and go historically. Some are greater and some are lesser. Um, The Old Testament kingdom of Israel was never a world-dominating power uh, in history. But, in redemptive history, the kingdom of Israel is of greater significance than any other human kingdom. So, think about that. Many great kingdoms, some of them are recognized and acknowledged in Scripture, across human history. But the kingdom of Israel is even disputed by some as to whether it even existed or to what degree it existed, if it was really more than just a, a collection of tribes. But in the scriptures, the kingdom of Israel is revealed to us in redemptive history as being more important than any other human kingdom. Uh, It should be noted that there are many earthly kingdoms named in the Bible in history and prophecy. For example, are you familiar with hearing about Assyria? Or how about Egypt? Egypt's a really big one. But you know what's interesting is that when we come to the prophecies of Daniel and what God is revealing more to Daniel about and for us concerning God's kingdom and the kingdoms of uh, the world, Egypt is not mentioned. 
But, but throughout Scripture, Egypt is an important uh, human kingdom involved in God's redemptive purpose. So we know that it's named and identified for us. But we have to sort these th- things out in balance from what Scripture reveals to us. So the Scriptures reference different kingdom types. It's another thing that I really want to press on you this morning. Uh, there is a, a renewed debate going on. <clears throat> you may be familiar with it about the kingdom of God. Uh, is there are there two king two kingdoms? One kingdom, two kingdoms. Uh, it's an interesting debate. Some people locate this uh, debate back to Augustine in the city of God and the city of man. Some located in uh, Luther's uh, views and writing on law and gospel and other aspects of, of those writings of the Reformers regarding <clears throat> the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a whole lot more that has been written, and it comes and goes in various waves. Uh, it seems that part of the current um, resurgence of discussion and, and talk and attempts to deal with this center around the application of, of justice and of social justice particularly, what is the relationship of Christians, what is the kingdom of God, in relationship to civil authorities or to culture or to uh, issues of justice, social justice, and other named uh, uh, concerns and issues. And so it is a big question, and it's an important question. I think sometimes um, we need to go back to Scripture and have a good starting place. That's kind of what I'm attempting to do this morning in talking to you about the Scriptures, revealing to us and referencing different types of kingdoms. For example, the scriptures tells us there's a kingdom of Satan and darkness. Tells us there's a kingdom of Christ and of light. Tells us there are kingdoms of this world and there are kingdoms that are not in this world. And so the scriptures do have a good bit to say to us in identifying and helping us sort through and come to understand more uh, particularly and and appreciate more definitely that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So... Important to the interpretation and meaning of the kingdom of God and of his Christ, Daniel's prophecies identify for us four kingdoms of world dominion as prophetic archetypes in order to distinguish the kingdom of God not to be of this world, but in this world. Again, something I want to emphasize to you. This is what is revealed to us. This is what is from Scripture. The kingdom of God is Not of this world, but it is in this world. And so we turn to consider some things that I hope will be foundational, that I hope will give us a direction and a perspective on better appreciating the question about identifying the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. The prophetic unveiling of the kingdom of God did not begin with Daniel. However, from Daniel's prophecies, a facet of the jewel gives a shining light of guiding truth about Christ's many crowns. Have you remember, have you uh, come across that description? Have you heard of that description? Have we lifted our voices in praise and adoration and singing of that description of the many crowns of Christ? Crown him with many crowns. Upon his head were uh, many crowns, many tiaras, many uh, diadems. Well, beloved, I want you to understand those are not ornamental. Christ rules not only in a magnificent, multiple power that is um, 
undefinable by human terms in terms of his sovereignty and his power. There's nothing else like it. But also, those multiple crowns suggest to us the diversity of the wonder of who Christ is. So, this is sourced in the heavenly throne as we read of that description of the resurrected and glorified and ascended Christ. The curtain pulled back for us a little bit and that heavenly throne is a nuclear model because around it are the orbiting presence of those in heaven worshiping and glorifying God. And this nuclear model is of the throne of the Creator God's sovereign and absolute kingly rule over all creation. Chapter 4 of, of Revelation. He is glorified in heaven. In the heavenly holy of holies, the glories are declared, the antiphonal praises that reverberate around the throne of God is that He is glorified as Creator of all. And then going into chapter 5, we find that the Lamb that was slaughtered is the Lion of Judah. That the Lamb is glorified. He is worthy to open the scroll with its seals. And He is worshipped again with antiphonal glories and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. And He is glorified and worshipped as the exclusive messianic mediator and ruler. This is the glorified Jesus as Savior and King of the church. By this analogy, I want you to think of two crowns. Many crowns, but two of the crowns adorning the head of the glorified Jesus Christ represent His place in the Holy Trinity as Sovereign Creator. The Eternal Son of God. That's why we confess the Nicene Creed this morning with such emphasis upon very God of very God. Eternally begotten, second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Creator of all. And so, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ, has His place in the Holy Trinity as Creator and Sovereign and ruling King over all creation. But then also, here's a great mystery. To me, it's one of the greatest mysteries of all. That the Son of God, eternal God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, took upon Himself a true human nature. And through the incarnation from the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, miracle of miracles, God became man, Emmanuel with us. And in this role as mediator, Jesus is glorified and exalted through death and resurrection, glorified and ascended. And there is something and a presence in heaven that didn't exist there before, and that is the glorified Jesus. Because there was no pre-existence of the human nature of the man Jesus. The Son of God has eternally existed with the Father. But the human nature of the man Jesus came into time and space history when the time was fulfilled according to the purpose of God. And then having accomplished the Father's will, even through the deepest distress and in the deepest mystery of, oh, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus ascended on high after the resurrection, glorified to the throne of God, 
his right hand. There he rules in session until he makes all of his enemies, God's enemies and our enemies, his footstool. So you see, here is another crown of the glorified, anointed Savior Jesus Christ in heaven wearing the mediatorial crown of his kingdom, the church. And so by this analogy of two crowns adorning the head of the glorified Jesus Christ, we have represented his place in the Holy Trinity as sovereign creator and his mediatorial office as anointed Savior. The prophetic and the messianic revelations of the new covenant gospel unveil some of the mysteries of the glorified Jesus Christ preparing and delivering his kingdom to the Heavenly Father, thus finally bringing the sovereign throne of heaven and Christ's kingdom into consummated glory. Hear these scriptures, starting in Hebrews. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, God, the triune God, putting everything in subjection to the mediator, Christ, He, God, left nothing outside of his control. Everything. There is nothing outside of his sovereign control and power and rule. At present, then, as the writer to the Hebrews wrote, and now, as we believe, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him with the eyes of our flesh. Let's be honest about it. And that's what the unbelievers and the naysayers try to condemn us about. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is his rule? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there death? Why is it they want to blame God for their sin rather than turning to God in repentance? But that's the way of the world, blinded, but not the way for you and me as believers. No, with the eyes of our flesh, we don't see everything in subjection under him, but in faith we know that it is. But we see him. Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels in his incarnation. Namely, Jesus. So that there's no confusion about who we're talking about. Crowned with glory and honor. Many crowns. Because of the suffering of death. So that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It was a real death. Jesus died a real death with cosmic implications. And greater yet was his resurrection. But we don't just believe in a dead Jesus. We believe in a resurrected Jesus. We don't just believe in a resurrected Jesus, beloved. We believe in a glorified Jesus. Beloved, we don't just believe in a glorified Jesus. We believe in ascended Jesus at the right hand of the glory of the Father in heaven, ruling till he makes all of his enemies and our enemies his footstool. By faith, we see Jesus glorified in heaven. For it was fitting that he, that is the Lord Jesus, for whom by whom all things exist, He is one in the Trinity uh, with the Creator God. To bring many sons to glory should make the founder, the messianic office of our Savior, to make their salvation perfect through suffering. Here again is what throws the world into fits. Of old, the Romans and the Greeks didn't get it. The Jews didn't get it. Today, the world doesn't get it Uh, a suffering, sacrificing Savior. But if you understand God's holiness and you understand sin, then you understand it could be no other way. God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Because he's holy. He's the holy God creator. Everyone will give an account to him. 
every human from all history, from, yes, literal Adam and Eve, until the day that the thunders peal and the trumpet sounds and Jesus Christ comes back, everyone, the just and the unjust, the dead and those who are raised from the dead and those who are alive, everyone will give an account to God the Creator. That is the great day. We must always hear of that day. We must always be warned of that day. We must always be anticipation of that day because Scripture tells us to watch and to long and to pray. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He comes for our salvation. This is what, again, Scripture tells us. He'll appear a second time, this time without reference to the cross and without reference to death and without reference to sacrifice because that's been done. That's been accomplished. And he'll come again with power and judgment upon all. And then we have this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to look at this passage again. Paul writes here, and you, you know about the chapter 15 of, of Corinthians, about the, the power and the meaning and the importance of the resurrection. And so Paul writes here, then comes the end, then comes the consummation, then comes the goal, the conclusion of all things. When he delivers, this is Christ, the glorified Lord Jesus, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. Here again in referencing this dual role that Jesus is the mediator and he's building his kingdom, the church. But there is a proposed time and purpose of God when in connection with the Holy Trinity, the mediator will deliver the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. That again is um, comprehensive. Every rule and every authority that exists that is within the realm of creation and the world that, that we live on earth and in the unseen world. Every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, that is the Lord Jesus, glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now that helps to frame us for the coming of the goal and the end and the purposed consummation. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Death has lost its sting. There is no victory in the grave. But do you know, believe, beloved, death will be eradicated. This is a promise that is set before us. And this is what Christ as mediator is doing in this world. To save it. And then Paul writes, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is the triune God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Christ the mediator. Isn't it interesting that Paul, isn't it curious that Paul says he, he needs to explain this to us? Because he's saying, look, here is what you should see. There is the triune God of which the second person of the Holy Trinity eternally exists and is present. And that's a sovereign rule, an absolute kingly presence and rule over the realm of his creation. And then there's the mediatorial office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king to his church and what he is doing in the salvation of the world and his kingdom that he is building 
And the triune God is not subject to that. It's the other way around. And it's not a subordinationism. It's an economic development of the kingdom of God. He is saving the world. He's saving the world. And so, when all things are subjected to Him, Christ and His mediatorial rule, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the triune God who put all things under Him. And here will come the consummation of most inexplicable glory and full of glory. God will be all in all. Well, I hope that that gives you a perspective and a place to start. I think the conversation is important as we ask, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God in reference to the kingdoms of the world? There are a lot more questions I know that come up. But here's some things that we need to get grounded in first. So Daniel's telling and interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream serves as a prototype prophecy for the kingdom of God, the church. This is what the Nebuchadnezzar's dream was about. You know that he had the dream and he was disturbed and uh, he didn't, for some reason he had questions about the, the soothsayers and the magicians and the, the uh, interpreters and, and, and the like, the wise men. And he says, you tell me what the dream is and then I'll know you can tell me the interpretation. You, you know the story. How they, could, they said, nobody's ever asked uh, this before. What, you think we can read your mind? We don't know what your dream was. You've got to tell us a dream. Then we can tell you what it means. And he wasn't fooled by that. He said, no. And if you can't tell me the dream, then you're of no use. So uh, an execution order went out. You, you know the story. And you know that as we read this morning, Daniel prayed. He gathered his friends together to pray and ask God if he would be willing to reveal the, the dream to them and the interpretation that they might live and continue to witness for him. They laid it before the Lord. And then God revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And this is what Daniel says in Witnesses Before Nebuchadnezzar. God in heaven reveals secrets and he foretells the future to whom and when he pleases. Because he is sovereign God. He is kingly rule. There is no king above him. He is above all the kings of the earth. He rises them up and he lets them fall. There are many kingdoms throughout the world. Many kingdoms that are of greater and lesser presence but God is in control of it all no king comes to the throne no president is elected no dictator rises on the bloodbath of of others but that God is in sovereign control of that even if he allows them to manifest the wickedness of their evil hearts and grasping for power on earth who's going to charge God you better keep your place I can't explain how all these things come about. But I know God is not tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man. But no powers arise or fall. But that God is accomplishing the good pleasure of his will. And if that doesn't match with what you think, you better humble yourself to God. I've come up with many people who think they can tell God what to do. If I were God, I would do it this way. No, you wouldn't. That's a... A blasphemous claim. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream and interprets it. And you, you know that dream of the, the image uh, of the uh, head of gold and the uh, shoulder and the uh, chest of um, silver, uh, the thighs, uh, belly and the thighs of brass, and then the 
uh, the ankle, shins, feet of um, iron, and then the toes, iron and clay mingled together. You know that image that's revealed and how Daniel interpreted that and said, these are four kingdoms of world-dominating power. These are prototypical uh, kingdoms of the grasp for dominating the world for world power. Let me just give you an aside here. I know that sometimes it's popular that there are conspiracy theories. All kinds of conspiracy theories about who rules the world and is there a secret elite that's really pulling the strings and all this kind of thing. I think that's a perversion of the sovereignty of God, to be honest with you. But here's what I want you to know from Psalm 2. Fallen humanity is always, always attempting to conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Don't be surprised by that. And don't give in to these expansive theories and attempts to try to identify them all. Fallen humanity is always conspiring against the Lord and his anointed one. So let's see it for what it is. And so uh, from uh, the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, he gave the interpretation to Daniel to identify those kingdoms for us. But of most importance is what was in that dream that destroyed the image. You remember that, don't you? A little rock cut out without man's hands. Why is it described that way? It's not of human origin. Remember the fact that that when altars were built under the old covenant, God restricted and said and prohibited them from, from shaping and forming the stones with human tools? Here we're given a description of something that's in this world, but not of this world. It's a a little rock in the dream that is not cut by human instrumentality or human means. And that rock bowls over this image and crushes it into powder. And then it becomes what? No longer a little rock. A mountain. Not just any mountain. The mountain that covers the whole earth and is called the kingdom of God. God sets up a kingdom. And that kingdom started out as a little rock, not of human origin, that crushes all of the pretentious and even the providential allowed dominating power of these prototypical kingdoms. But it sets up and becomes the mountain of the Lord, the kingdom of God. And then we go over to chapter 7 of of Daniel's uh, prophecy in the book of Daniel. And you know that there that we have an elaboration. But here we have four beasts that are described in, in, a, in a dream that Daniel has. And Daniel's disturbed and troubled by this dream. It was so vivid, a dream vision that was given to him. And he remembers and recalls this dream and the description that was given there of the four beasts of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And it enlarges for us the prototypical prophecy of the kingdom of God as the church. Because here, in this description of the four beasts, as Daniel ponders over them, then in, in this vision, the Ancient of Days judges over the affairs of these earthly kingdoms in view of the great judgment. But one like the Son of Man receives the everlasting kingdom from the Ancient of Days. That is, the triune sovereign God gives the church as kingdom to the Messiah Savior. And then Daniel's wanting to know more. He's, he's concerned and interested. Who, what is this all about? Who are these beasts? What do they mean? And so he's told that the four beasts are four human kings and kingdoms. They will pass away. 
But the saints of the Most High possess the everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that's the mountain of the Lord and the earth. The, the kingdom that is the kingdom of God that's in this world but not of this world. And then Daniel is so preoccupied and he asks specifically about the fourth beast and what all this means and the ten horns and the little horn. He, he's fixed on this and he wants to know. He knows it's important. So during the time of the fourth beast is when the Ancient of Days makes a judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High that the time has come for the saints to possess the kingdom and the court of heaven has decreed it. Now, you're probably familiar that there are any number of attempts to try to identify the ten horns and the little horn. Uh, We sometimes kind of skip over the fact that the four kingdoms are identified for us. And that fourth kingdom, the kingdom and empire of Rome, uh, is the ten horns to be taken literally as ten kings or ten Caesars or ten rulers? And uh, the one horn in their midst, one of them from the, the conspiracies and the intrigues that went on in Rome among the Caesars? Or can the number ten be more figurative and symbolic for us? Well, there's already symbolic numbers given uh, even in reference to the time frame that God says that he gives the... Uh, the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. So there is already a, in text uh, a s- use of symbolic numbers. Uh, I tend to, to lean toward that. I'm not dogmatic about it, but I think it's probably more of a symbolic reference here. And there have been attempts to identify the little horn. Perhaps the little horn is one of the, the, the persecuting uh, Caesars, perhaps Nero. Arguments have been made for that. Uh, others have argued that in reference to time frame and to the, the, the history, that this is not so much about the history of um, the Roman Empire as what re-manifests uh, itself as the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church. I, I don't particularly agree with that interpretation, but there are those who have um, given much detail and attention to uh, arguing for that. There is another notion that I have and again, I do not give this dogmatically. I just suggest that in the midst of these rulers within the fourth kingdom, which I do believe is Rome, the Roman Empire, at the time of Christ and the gospel and the apostles primarily is the way I view it. And I think that the little horn could be a suggestion of the Herodian dynasty. Not because it's of great importance to the world, because it was a, of immediate significance to the life of Jesus and to the accomplishment of the Messiah and what he did in reference to the kingdoms of the world and even in reference to the temple and to the old kingdom. So again, not being dogmatic, I'm just offering a suggestion there that perhaps the little horn here uh, has more to do with Herod and the Herodians in collusion with the Roman powers. Just a suggestion. But you know what's really more important? is not the things we don't know. It's what we do know. And what is declared to us. And how we go on into the balance of uh, Daniel chapters 8 through 12. And even more specific become the prophecies. More details and historical identity of these kingdoms and beasts. And more specifically focusing in on the cutting off of Messiah. Messiah the Prince. The confirming of the new covenant. That which we are celebrating this morning. Remembering the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And of Jesus saying that... After this accomplishment, he will sup with us. He will drink of this wine new in the kingdom of God. And it's my belief that 
Jesus is referencing our celebration of the Lord's Supper, not to some indefinite future. But Jesus is saying, He is with us. He is present with us in the great mystery and wonder of the kingdom of God. By sight unseen, but by faith confirmed, Jesus is more present to us and with us than this bread or this cup to our physical senses. We're called to faith. We're called to accept by faith. We're called to see Jesus as an accomplishment, as our great king of salvation, our great founder, our great captain. We're called to see him by faith in this Lord's Supper and what he has done with the end of bloodshed, the prince of peace. Every time I take this cup in the Lord's Supper, if I don't pray it audibly, I'm praying it in my heart and mind. Oh, let your kingdom come when there will be no more bloodshed. There will be no more death. This is a symbolic cup because the once and for all blood of Jesus has been offered. And the time will come, beloved, when there will be no more violence. There will be no more bloodshed. There will be no more death. We take this Lord's Supper as an offering of peace in the name of Jesus. And so Daniel is revealed to him. The identity of these kingdom beasts and more particularly the cutting off of Messiah Prince in the, the midst of the fourth kingdom and the confirming of the new covenant and the desolation of earthly Jerusalem and its temple. I, I don't think we give enough attention to that in the end of the old covenant. And what Jesus said to his disciples, don't you get it? Don't you see it? Not one stone will be left upon another here. All will be torn down and destroyed. Because where is the true kingdom? Beloved, you know this. Where is the true Jerusalem? Where is the true temple? We, (laughs) in this world but not of this world, we are the kingdom of God. We are the new temple of worship. God is gathering together all to worship Him in spirit and truth. Not in this mountain, not in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. And that's what we are celebrating and that's why we worship by faith. That's why we're called together and we confess the kingdom of God has come. Not in might, not in power, but by the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is among us. It's within us. It is us. And so the coming consummation is when In his mediatorial role as prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, and glorified one who sits in session at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, never having abandoned or left his place in the Holy Trinity as a second person, but in that special crown of his mediatorial office as Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Savior of the world. He is ruling by the power of His gospel and the new covenant fulfilled in His blood. He will rule till all His enemies are under His feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death and He will deliver the mediatorial kingdom up to His Father that God will be all in all. Crown Him with many crowns. He is Lord of Lords. And King of Kings. I hope this is a good starting place for questions and concerns about the kingdom of God, two kingdoms, one kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of man, city of God, city of man, 
how this manifests itself. I don't think it's well received. And some, uh, some development within our Reformed history, there's been an attention, particularly in the Reformation in Scotland, there was attention given to this important distinction between the universal sovereignty and the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ. And here's one of the things that was said that has really stuck with me from those ancient fathers of the church who loved the Lord Jesus. Many of them witnessed to him with their own blood in times of persecution. But this is what they said in a time of great perception. Christ does not mediate his saving grace, but only through his church. He doesn't mediate his saving grace through the family, although he gives us covenant promises. You cannot save your children. But you can bring them into the presence of the Lord and you can pray and you can keep the good promises of God and hope for their salvation. And Christ does not mediate his saving grace through the civil powers. It's even legitimate for an infidel to hold the civil office as long as he abides by the laws of the land that do not violate the laws of God. But he can't save you. There is no political salvation. Christ does not mediate his saving grace through the civil authorities or through the civil powers. Christ only mediates his saving grace through his church. That is the kingdom, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us celebrate and rejoice that God has brought us out of the kingdom and the domain of darkness. And where has he brought us? into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We are beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus' promise to us that we are loved. This is Jesus' promise to us that God the Father has loved us. He did not spare His own Son. Oh, Father, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but Your will be done. God the Father did not spare His own Son, but offered Him up for you and for me that we might be saved and might be in the eternal kingdom. The saints of the Most High. Our hymn of meditation